The first lesson a watcher learns is to separate truth from illusion, because in the world of magics, it is the hardest thing to do. Truth is that Fred is gone. To pretend anything else would be a lie. And since I don't actually intend to die tonight, I won't accept, I won't embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 68 of Embrace the Void, where things are better than they were when we recorded the interview. I'm your host, Aaron, and not with me for this tiny intro segment, but with me for the interview, thanks to hilarious scheduling snafus, is my co-host, GW. We'll be doing a State of the Void discussion next week, uh, but this interview is really just so great that we couldn't wait, so cue the sound effects. This void has a total lack of dimension. Therefore, by any accepted standard, it does not exist, yet being within it denies that conclusion. Our guest this week is Dr. Rachel McKinnon, assistant professor in philosophy at the College of Charleston uh, and a world champion cyclist. Dr. McKinnon, would you like to say hi to the void? Uh, hi, void. Lovely. Um, so I'm really excited about this interview. Um, full disclosure, uh, we... We did this interview once already, and it went so amazingly well that The Void decided to capture it all for its own. So, but it's there's so much good things that we wanted to talk about with you that we're going to give it another go. And I think it's going to be great, despite the fact that we're all sort of nervously sitting around waiting for election results. Um, so would you like to Indeed. maybe start by giving folks a little information on your background and your interests in philosophy in general? Sure. Um, I, I think it's kind of common in philosophy, especially for those who go get a PhD, that they didn't start in philosophy. I started in kinesiology, uh, being an, an athlete, that was sort of a natural thing for a lot of athletes to want to go to university for. Um, and I ended up switching into chemistry. I did a work term and was bored out of my mind. And somehow <laughs> it made sense to me to just jump head first into a philosophy major. Um, but I did and I loved it. I never looked back. I did my undergrad in Victoria, BC, which is where I'm from, I'm Canadian. Did my master's in Halifax at Dalhousie. Um, when I was in my master's, I started getting really interested into decision theory and epistemology. And I kind of haven't stopped with that but I took two years off. I played poker professionally for a total of about six years. And so for those two years, all I did was play poker and go golfing. So that was pretty interesting. Uh, and then I did my PhD and I focused on the intersection of philosophy of language and, and epistemology. So how we communicate knowledge to people. And uh, this is a debate that we call the norms of assertion. Is it ever permissible to lie? Are you... Uh, supposed to only say things that you know, um, or can you sometimes, you know, if you're doing it for the right reasons, 
um, lie like in cases of, of teaching. So I spent my dissertation on that. My first book is on the norms of assertion. And then more recently, I do a lot of work in um, epistemic injustice. So how I kind of work on how we're assholes to each other, uh, to put it really <laughs> bluntly. So I work on propaganda. I work on when we don't believe each other for bad reasons. I work on gaslighting as epistemic injustice. Um, and lately, I've also been working more in strictly feminism, feminist philosophy, and trans studies, working on the ways that trans women in particular suffer harassment in our society. And then most recently, um, I've started working on a number of projects about trans athlete rights in sport. That, I do a, a lot of things. Yeah, that's really that's great. Awesome. That's, that's sort of good coverage. That's like, Aaron, you need to step up your game. Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that like makes sense though. As sort of an arc of um, issues having to do with uh, epistemology and communication and ethics, I think there's a lot of really valuable um, stuff there. Do you have any like forthcoming work beyond the um, the athlete sort of stuff? Are you thinking about uh, like another book or something? I have so much work mm -hmm. at any one time. Um, my third article on luck, I just Ooh, luck. sent back the copywriting uh, or copy edited version. So I'll see the page proofs for that. So I've, I've three articles on luck, another one coming out. Um, I have one coming out on microaggressions and the fundamental attribution error. So it's sort of the psychology of harassment um, that's co-authored with a, a friend from Memphis, Christina Friedlander. Um, and then a couple papers on athlete rights, um, particularly trans athlete rights. And I was working on a second book on norms of assertion-y stuff, calling in, calling out propaganda. But um, with a lot of the harassment that I faced within the profession, um, it, it became a little too difficult to work on the book anymore, so I've kind of abandoned that at the moment. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, what, what sort of harassment have you experienced within the profession? Mention it. Um, as an outspoken trans person, um, there has been a real uptick lately within the past two years of what we refer to as trans-exclusionary radical feminism or TERF, and um, these people, I, I typically say that they are everything wrong with second wave feminism wrapped up in a little ball <laughs> of hate. Um, so they view gender as um, bioessentialist. So XX chromosome is female, XY is male, um, trans women are not women to them, or trans women are not female to them. Um, and they seem to spend a lot of their time trying to harass trans people and specifically trans women online. Um, and I've been a, a particular target of theirs for a number of years now. Yeah, I think um, it, it was interesting. I first interacted with you on Twitter talking about the trans athlete material, but um, realized in sort of doing sort of more background reading that you were connected to or, or sort of you were one of the people for which the the whole debate emerged within academic philosophy about 
the use of turf in um, papers, something that I'd heard about sort of a little while ago as being a dust up that was happening between um, feminists debating the use of this kind of terminology and that had come from something that you had written, right? Yeah, and it's not even a debate, really. Mm-hmm. Um, for most feminist philosophers of language that I know that are established within the discipline, um, they don't tend to consider turf a slur. So the people who are trying to debate that it is a slur don't tend to have a philosophy of language or a research background on the nature of slurs. And so um, I do have a very detailed YouTube video on the philosophy of language of slurs, and I present what I take to be the sort of knockdown argument that turf can't be a slur. And none of the people who are trying to revive that question have had any satisfactory response to my argument. Yeah, could we could we dig into that a little bit? So what so what is your definition of slur? Um, well, I personally don't really have one. Um, what I say for my view in the video is that it's not even that important which theory of slurs we pick. Um, because whichever one we pick, turf will not come out being a slur. So the status of turf as not a slur is really theory independent, which is a good thing. Um, But many theories have in common a few features. One is that, and, and the most important one, is that for a slur, the negative content of the term is inseparable from the term. So there are no non-slur uses of the term in question. Um, This gets into interesting issues of can you reclaim slurs? For example, the term dyke uh, was a slur and then over many decades became reclaimed. Queer is another really good example. Um, Bitch, maybe. Um, Mm -hmm. So before slurs are reclaimed, you can't use the term in a non-negative way, whereas each of these slur terms has a non-pejorative correlate, or an NPC. So um, dyke, for example, would have a non-pejorative correlate of lesbian woman. So it's the same semantic content as the slur, but doesn't carry the negative pragmatic aspects of the slur term. So with TERF, trans-exclusionary radical feminist was a term coined by fellow cisgender radical feminists who were really annoyed that another group of radical feminists who didn't think that trans women were women were kind of shitting all over the name of radical feminism. And so they're like, well, we need a term that says, look, we're radical feminists, but we're not those assholes. So they coined the term TERF to refer only to these transphobic radical feminists. Um, So the term itself, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, is the non-pejorative correlate of TERF. So when a term is its own non-pejorative correlate, it simply cannot be a slur. Is it still a non-pejorative correlate, even if, like you said, the people who coined it intended uh, had in their minds sort of a negative connotation towards that group? Like the people, like you said, well, didn't like TERFs? Well, they didn't have, um, they didn't want to encode in the term anything pejorative. Mm-hmm. So 
some turfs have tried to say that the so they don't object to the radical feminist part. So the RF of turf is not what they um, object to. So they have to be objecting to the trans exclusionary part. And uh, some people have tried to say that to say that someone is exclusionary of a position is necessarily pejorative. But in a society that is dominantly um, transphobic, transmisogynistic, and cis-sexist, which Western societies are, um, you can't say that to call someone trans-exclusionary is pejorative because they are in the majority. So um, I think the they could try to argue that uh, a term, for example, like bigot, necessarily encodes something negative in it, but bigot is not a slur. At best, bigot is a um, derogatory term, which is basically a less serious version of a slur. Um, think wouldn't, wouldn't, if I, sorry, if I can interject super quick, wouldn't a slur imply that it's towards a certain group and a bigot doesn't necessarily apply to a certain group? Right, I was just about to say that. Oh, so, oh sorry. <laughs> <laughs> which, which means I'm with you. You are with me. So the the difference between a slur and a derogatory term, and this is Lynn Terrell's work, is that a slur encodes a stereotype about a group that mm -hmm. a derogatory term doesn't. So think of um, derogatory term plus oppressive stereotype equals slur. Right. So. Bigot doesn't carry any um, stereotype with it about like what type of person you are. Um, there are bigots of all types and shapes and sizes. Um, it's, a, it's a very diverse word there. <laughs> right. So I, I think that TERFs would have a much better argument if they tried to say that um, it's a pejorative term that functions like bigot. But even then, I, I just don't think it does. I think we need to be able to have language, particularly as trans people who are the marginalized group, to talk about the types of people who are opposing our rights and trying to engage in oppression. And uh, there are certain feminists who purposefully exclude trans women from their liberatory politics. And we should be able to call them trans-exclusionary feminists. And there are a group of radical feminists who do that and we should be able to call them trans-exclusionary radical feminists, and that's what the term TERF does. Um, well, so yeah. the, I'm curious to know about this. You know, what about the case where, you know, like in TERF, right, it, 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 the words themselves are very explicit and specific, and I agree with you 100% that they're not, not pejorative in any way. But I wonder if then the term TERF, right, that that term itself potentially could be right i'm trying to think of like you know when we used to say illegal immigrant and then it got shortened to just illegal then then the term illegal in a way became pejorative of you know people who migrated here and and we've now adopted the term undocumented so what do I, like is there is there a way of describing cases like that oh absolutely so there are lots of ways that neutral terms can uh, be co-opted or morph into derogatory terms or even slur. Um, one example that Terrell talks about uh, that contributes, she argues, to the Rwandan genocide was the word 
in Yenzi for cockroach.、Mm-hmm. So it was a dehumanizing language that、uh, was used to attach to、um, one of the particular tribes that was then massacred in, in the genocide.、Um, so it's, it's absolutely the case that a term like illegal, shortened from illegal immigrants,、um, created. So、uh, illegal is originally like an adjective,、um, and it became a noun. Right, so right. talking about illegals coming in is is to use a plural noun. So sometimes、um, one way that a neutral term becomes a slur or derogatory term is just shifting what part of language it is, so it becomes a noun. Pretty much every slur, because I'm being a philosopher and I like to qualify my statements, but <laughs> I think every single slur is a noun.、Um, And so I think that's one sign that illegal has shifted to derogatory content. Yeah. yeah.、Um, but also the the term illegal in this derogatory way does connote an oppressive stereotype, right? So of being、uh, dirty and criminal and brown, generally Mexican、um, or Central American, right? So. These stereotypes are carried with that term, so it's absolutely the case that a neutral term can become a derogatory term or a slur. So then,、um, using that logic, it is it's possible for the term "turf" to become a pejorative, but it, it would seem to me that it wouldn't be possible in the context of, you know, trans folks saying it against、uh, these radical feminists, just because. Relatively speaking, the trans folks would be the marginalized group or the group with less in the power dynamic. They would be lesser on the power dynamic. I don't know. Yeah, so I'm sort of spitballing wanna, here.、Mm-hmm. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say that、um, marginalized groups can't have slurs for dominant groups. I don't want to、mm. say that.、Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. It, it is interesting that it, it is hard to think of like slurs for white people. I guess cracker. Um, but、mm, it's it's not the most harmful term. I know it's cokey.、Um, so the question is like, what to think about turf, right? So one thing is to distinguish between a neutral term that is used in a mean way. So we can do things like the term American, which is one I use in my video.、Um, in certain political contexts, to call someone an American is an insult. So. Uh, if you're in France, for example, you might say, "Oh my God, what are you an American?" <laughs> and that、um, sneering focal stress on the term、um, makes it a mean way to use the term, but the term itself is not pejorative itself. So there are absolutely mean uses of the term "turf," lots and lots. In fact. It's probably the case that most of the Twitter uses of turf are in a mean way. Like it's meant to be like you're a fucking turf. Right.、Um, so it's pretty much exactly that does not make the term negative. It's pretty much exactly what Ernest Sosa said about it being equivalent to the word Jew. Right? Jew is not a pejorative, even though if I say Jew, then it sounds that way. And if I'm talking about it on Twitter, I'm probably using it in a pejorative way. But that doesn't make it a pejorative, right?、Um, one thing that the turfs will say is that, well,、um, Jewish people do use the term Jew for themselves, but、um, uh, turfs 
tend not to adopt the term turf for themselves. Uh -huh. um, yeah. What would you? So um... I, I do think this is a, a little bit disanalogous from the um, case that Sosa talks about. Mm -hmm. What would you think about like some a term that re-emphasized what you were saying earlier about them being gender essentialist? Because I think you're right that that's sort of the key split here. If it was something like gender essentialist, radical feminists, GERFs, maybe. Right. Would they, <laughs> um, would they accept that themselves, though? I mean, would they see that it's as... Really, you know? It's really weird. Um, so back before this harassment helped me develop PTSD and I was working on my book, um, one of the main chapters was on turf propaganda. And I really wanted to do a deep dive into what is it... So I want to... Um, the things that philosophers should do is always build up their opponent's view as strong as possible so we don't engage in... And straw man arguments. And um, I wanted to really figure out, like, what is it that TERFs think? And um, one in particular, Rebecca Riley Cooper, who is one of the, the women who, you know, has been attacking me, um, you try to pin these people down and say, so you think that um, what makes someone female is that they have XX chromosomes, they have more estrogen than testosterone, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they're like, well, yeah. And then we say, okay, so you're you're a bioessentialist. And they're like, no. And we're <laughs> like, well, that's what that means. And so I've looked into it as much as I can, and I think their view is incoherent. Mm -hmm. I I do think that their view is um, self contradictory in certain places. Um, and so trying to track down like what term would we use to describe them above and beyond that they really do organize their feminism around uh, opposing trans women's rights to exist in women-only spaces. It seems most apt to describe that kind of feminism as a trans-exclusionary feminism. I don't think that there's a better term. It's fair. So one thing that they have proposed is to call themselves gender critical. Um, which mm, seems, seems obfuscatory. <laughs> it seems, well, it seems like instead of calling myself a white nationalist, I'll call myself an alt-right. Like, <laughs> yes, it, it is the exact same kind of euphemism, but also, um, trans inclusionary feminists are also heavily critical of concepts of gender. So they would be trying to co-opt well, we're just being critical of gender. We're gender critical feminists. It's like, nah, I think pretty much every feminist is gender critical in a meaningful sense, but not in the euphemistic sense that they want to take. This is um, something that uh, maybe we can dive a little deeper into the philosophy of we've had other folks, non-binary and folks on to talk about um, gender uh, as a concept. And I've sort of continued to wrestle with the debate that, as far as I can tell, is a live debate both inside the trans community and in other groups about are there any, is there anything in the world that is essentially coded for one gender or another? Is anything by nature gendered or is fundamentally sort of nothing gendered and so any person could identify as any gender while having any set of features? Yeah, so I think there's two things to say. One is, um, I think we should always use plurals when talking about communities. So it's trans communities rather than the singular. Mm -hmm. um, 
because we're not a monolith. Sure. Um, okay. We argue with each other more than we do with cis people, uh, especially on these sorts of questions. So um, there, there are a wide variety of views within trans communities on this question. Um, I think what you're asking is, is gender socially constructed and to what extent is it socially constructed? So um, the opposite of socially constructed would be some sort of gender essentialist view that there is, gender is out in the world and it is sort of human society independent. Um, I don't think that's true. I think that gender is necessarily a social construct, much in the way that money is. Um, you know, if mm -hmm. you think about fiat money, like U.S. most uh, international currencies, that we agree that this piece of paper that has a certain design on it is worth a pair of jeans if it's like a $100 bill um, is pretty interesting. Right? So the concept of money is socially constructed, and yet it's very, very useful, and it has real impacts on our lives. Um, so saying something that is gender or is uh, socially constructed does not mean it's not real or meaningful. So gender is absolutely socially constructed. If you think of just like colors, right? Pink is currently associated with the feminine, blue with the masculine, but 200 years ago, it was the exact opposite, right? Boys were dressed in pink because it was related to red, the color of war. Um, so, like, even a, a even color heels, that is, right? Even <clears throat> heels, like heels were originally invented and men wore them. Yeah, I and... think it was like Louis the Fourteenth or something. Um, so even yes, you're right. Uh, shoes with heels on them was originally a, a masculine uh, invention. So we can take anything in the world and code it in any gendered way that we want to. Um, mm -hmm. More plausibly, you might say that strength is coded as masculine. Um, that doesn't seem to be a thing that flips a whole lot. Um, you know, certainly Wonder Woman and myths of Amazonian women uh, are meant to combat that. But yeah, I, I don't think there are any any behaviors that are necessarily one gender or another. I, I think, I just, yeah, I, just, I think you're, I agree with you. I'd wanted to clarify because I think some folks who we, who are hip to the idea of gender as a social construct also, I think sometimes still think and the, this or that particular socially constructed version of that gender is real in some kind of, in, in a way that like, um, they then turn around and say that other people who don't fit that socially constructed. So like, you know, people who might yeah. feel like this person yeah. isn't presenting the right way or something. Sure. Um, yeah. And I think th this is, this is why I love your analogy of currency because it's so perfect, right? So few people realize like what currency is and how it's not bound to like the gold standard, which we got rid of in 71, I think it was, right? That it literally is just a piece of paper, a special type of paper with a special type of ink in a certain pattern, and that has value, and it is totally a socially constructed idea. Well, even then, gold is socially right. constructed in terms of value. So, like, sure, the, the sure. hunk of metal is real, but the value that humans attach to it is a social construct. And um I guess I just, wanted, so so I just I, wanted to add to that metaphor then. It seems to me that gender is like Bitcoin, where 
everyone can construct <laughs> their own crypto gender, essentially. Right. We don't have to be tied to America's version of gender or any particular country's version of gender. Right. And it's still real. Right. And it's still um, totally real. I wonder what the yeah. blockchain would be the equivalent <laughs> there. Yeah, that, that's a that's a rabbit hole. So um, I think that the sort of gender policing that goes on and, and does happen to some extent within uh, transgender communities, but really heavily the cisgender community. Uh, communities is is really tied to the binary view of gender. Mm -hmm. So uh, we really like to believe that there are only two sexes and there are only two genders and um, cisgender people are the ones whose gender identity maps onto or matches the one they were assigned at birth, which tends to map onto um, the uh, sex you were assigned at birth, right? So. Uh, Women are people who are assigned a girl at birth and female. Um, so people have been coming around to this idea that, well, okay, I understand trans women, I understand trans men, because I understand women and men, um, which is this, it's still requiring the binary, but I don't understand all the other options. So gender queer, gender fluid, agender, bigender, two-spirit, um, all these different non-binary options and uh, even people who are agender don't have a gender, right? They, they operate completely without, outside the spectrum of gender. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this still happens. I, I, humans seem to really like things to be on or off. People really like binary. Yeah, we're dualists. Yep. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's this, really this happens easy to with sexuality too, right? People understand gay, people understand straight, but they're like, what the hell is bi-gender and what the fuck is pan-gender? Right. Um, so, and, and then there's, you know, asexual or aromantic people who are sort of like agender, it's just I opt out. Um, it all, I, think, I think it comes down to, like my assumption would be it comes down to complexity, right? When you have two a two-party system, it's easy to sort of hold that in your head. And the more more variability within that system, the harder it gets to hold it all in your head. Um, spe speaking of this issue of binary, before we run out of um, time, I would be love to talk a little bit about the other controversy that you've been sort of coping with, um, which is the unfortunate binary nature of um, trans athleticism. And um, you are, uh, from what I understand, a now world record holding um, cyclist and that because you are a world record holding cyclist and a trans person, you have been dealing with a lot of people freaking out at you for doing such a horrible thing. Um, do you want to? How dare you? Yeah, right. How, how dare you? Do you want to maybe say a little bit about your view of um, athleticism as a human right and what that means for um, trans athletes who want to compete in this world? Of course. Um, so I don't currently hold any world records. Uh, a few weeks ago at the Masters World Track Cycling Championships, I did set the world record, but then was beaten 10 minutes later. Oh, I apologize. Excuse um, me. But I am a world champion. Okay. So, there we go. yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those, it's one of those sporty things. <laughs> yeah. It's a, Philosopher's it's a sports, sports complexity. Just, um, yeah, it's fine. So, yeah, three and a half weeks ago, um, in LA, I won a world championship for the Masters Women 35 to 44 age group in the sprint event. Um, 
So on Friday during qualifying, I broke the world record, um, but then was beaten 10 minutes later. The person who qualified first then withdrew from the competition out of protest over me being trans. Um, that then left me seated first in the competition. It's a, so in the sprint, it's a match sprint. So it's like a, like a tennis tournament where the first seed will play the bottom seed, second seed plays the seventh seed, so on and so forth. So um, I don't race people who don't come up against me. Um, so I race the eighth seed, I race the fourth seed, and then I race the second seed in the final. So for example, the person who came third, I never raced directly. Uh, and that's been a misconception a lot of people have had. It's like, oh, you beat her. It's like, no, the person who came second beat her, and then I beat that person. Uh, so I've been racing bikes for four years now and have been focusing exclusively on track cycling for a year. I made it to the top 100 ranked elite uh, women in the world um, in that event, I actually made it to 90th during the summer. So this is a thing that I spend 15 to 20 week, uh, hours a week on. I have two full-time coaches. I have lots of sponsors who give me the very best equipment. Um, so I, I focus on this as like a big part of, of my life and then competing around the country and increasingly around the world has caused me to sort of question, like, is it fair for trans women to compete in women's categories? Um, so obviously I know that I am allowed because the various sports organizations from the IOC, so the International Olympic Committee, the International Cycling Federation, which is the UCI, the USA Cycling Federation, every single federation says that trans women can compete under certain conditions. I meet those conditions so I can compete. But over the years, I, I still had this nagging problem of I don't know what to say to people who think that it's not fair for trans women to compete. So I had the opportunity last year to teach a, a course on sports ethics and I I wanted to know, like, what is the concept of fairness in sport? What is fairness? Which is one of these big philosophical questions, like, you know, what is justice, right? Start with the easy ones. Mm -hmm. And so I structured the entire course on what is fairness in sport? Because I wanted to know in order to figure out, is it fair for trans women to compete? Um, we can talk about what I think fairness is from that investigation, but what I found was the people thinking about fairness in sport are doing a really bad job of it. And um, <laughs> surprise, figuring surprise. out like a the right concept of fairness in sport and then looking into all the science behind um, estrogen, testosterone, transitions. Um, yeah, you, you, brought, you brought something up, if you don't mind me interjecting real quick. Yeah. The, when we recorded last time, you really opened my eyes to this. Uh, I'm going to try to recap it and we'll get it wrong. And then please correct me where I mess it up. So a while ago, I saw that documentary about Lance Armstrong and it talked a lot about doping and the tests that that cyclists at that level go through, which I'm sure you've gone through as well. Um, and one of the things they mentioned was that one of the ways that some people dope is they take testosterone. And one of the things that you said that was really fascinating to me is that uh, you know, one thing that I did know is, you know, everyone has both hormones, testosterone and estrogen in their body. 
and um you know generally speaking males have a lot more testosterone generally speaking and women have more estrogen um and the thing i didn't know that you said that made a lot of sense to me was that everyone has this sort of equilibrium of whatever that testosterone or, or estrogen level is and for folks that are trans when, once they go through hormone therapy hrt i think that's what it is yep but, yep um they Correct me if I'm wrong, but part of it blocks certain hormones. They uh, increase other amounts of hormones, and it changes their sort of internal hormone chemistry. Uh, and that, and and by doing that, it makes them equivalent to what would be appropriate for either the male or female categories in sports. All right, what did I mess up? I think nothing. Um, so, the current sport regulations. Uh, from the IOC on down, are that for trans women, they must suppress their endogenous internal naturally produced testosterone below a certain level. That level is 10 nanomoles per liter. And they selected that number um, using some pretty bad reasoning, but let's set that aside. It's <laughs> the bottom of the, and I'm big air quotes here, normal range for men. Um, the way that the to binomial distributions for men and women looks is there's complete overlap at the bottom end and then there isn't complete overlap at the high end. So we do find men who um, don't have any sort of medical condition but have naturally extremely low testosterone that are within or below the average female range. And um, a recent study found that a disproportionate number of men with very low testosterone are still competing at the world level in track and field. So it's absolutely a myth that someone who naturally has more endogenous testosterone will be bigger, stronger, faster than someone who has naturally lower testosterone. Right, um, and, and, that it, and that it's folks that take testosterone Right. as a performance enhancing thing, yes. it pushes their testosterone above their yes. normative right. equilibrium. Yes, exactly. So people think the myth is that, well, if why why can that why would that be the case? That um, there is no relationship between endogenous testosterone and performance if exogenous testosterone, doping external testosterone does have a performance advantage. Like why would that be different? Um, well, it's not because they're chemically different. They are very slightly. That's why we can test for doping testosterone. But um, it doesn't act on the body in any different way. What happens is um, whenever you take someone's homeostasis value of endogenous testosterone, if you add more to it through doping, performance will go up. If you take some away through, for example, illness, surgery, or hormone therapy, and you drop their natural testosterone, below what their body is used to, performance goes down. So it's not the absolute value of testosterone in your body that matters for performance, it's what do you do from someone's homeostasis value. If you add more through doping, performance goes up. If you take some away through hormone therapy, performance goes down. Yeah, the analogy I used last time, I don't know if you liked it or not, was it's almost like everyone has a different size glass and that glass is supposed to be filled to the brim with, you know, water or whatever, or whatever that hormone is. And if you reduce it, then you have a reduction in that water, in that hormone. And if you fill it over, it overflows and it doesn't matter. Uh, each person has a different size glass. 
the effect is essentially the same. Yeah, I think another analogy is um, think about like Formula One racing. Mm. The drivers can control the leadness or richness of the fuel while they're driving. Mm. I didn't know so, that. Um, if they need to stretch out how long their fuel will last, they will make the mixture more lean, so less um, potent. And so the car won't go as fast, but it will be able to go longer. But if they have plenty of fuel, then they're going to make it go rich and then they'll go faster. So um, sort of adding more testosterone is like making your body more rich. Um, you're adding more than it's used to and so it goes faster or taking it away through like hormone therapy is like making it more lean and then you don't go quite as fast. So, so would you say, um, that you are sympathetic in principle to the, the concern that I hear the most when I was talking to people about this was like the potential erasure of, um, cis female athletes from various, if, if not entire sort of um, sports than particular competitions within sports. In your video, you talked about sort of um, how different body types might fit for different sports. Um, and so if they were concerned that, um, generically speaking, um, trans athletes would be able to dominate at least sub parts of some sports, um, would you say that like that that is an understandable concern, but not one that will actually play out in reality? Or would you push back on sort of that concern at a conceptual level as well? Both. Mm -hmm. um, so at the conceptual level, it's really important that the way that we structure sport currently is that the IOC functions as um, sort of the top organization and any Olympic eligible sport, the international and national federations have to at least satisfy the IOC policies. And so the IOC Olympic Charter is a foundational document for all Olympic eligible sport and cycling is one of those sports. And so in the Olympic Charter, they have seven fundamental principles of Olympism. The fourth one starts with a first full sentence that says participation in sport is a human right. And what they mean by sport is competitive sport. So they really do mean that sport fits within a human rights, an international human rights legal and ethical framework. And as soon as that's true, um, and the IOC says that sport is divided into male and female only, and you must compete in your legally recognized gender. So if you are a trans woman and you are legally recognized as female, your passport, driver's license, birth certificate, right, all your documents say female on it, then you have to compete in the female category. So the issue here is, um, if we're saying it's not fair for trans women to compete, they are not allowed to compete in the men's category because they're legally recognized as female. Um, so you're saying that they are out of sport, and that means you're violating a human right. There is no human right to win. There is a human right to participate, and that's part of the friction. So some people are saying, oh, well, cis women have a right to win, and if you let dominant trans women in, then you're like, you're, you have competing rights, but you don't have a right to win. Hmm. But that's the conceptual level. Mm -hmm. The, the on-the-ground reality is that I am one of the very first trans women to win a world championship in any sport ever. And in international sport, 
The Olympics included trans people have been openly allowed to compete since 2003, November 2003, which means the 2004 Athens Olympics were the first ones. No trans person has ever won an Olympic medal. And there are fewer than a handful of trans athletes that have won a world championship ever. So the worry that once we start letting trans people compete, which we've already done for 15 years, then they're just going to dominate has not happened and so it likely will never happen. It sounds like the whole foundation of the Olympics has completely destroyed. Thank you for doing that. Mm -hmm. like, what am I going to do with my life now? <laughs> nope. It's ridiculous. Nope. Um, so... So there was a lot of stuff there in terms of like potential avenues that this could go down in terms of ways to correct for this. There was like you pointed out there people are required to compete in um, the sort of their legal sex category um, that there are only these two categories. Do you, do you have any sort of thoughts about like looking down the line a bit, which of the various kinds of correctives you think might help with the situation or is it just what is what there is currently is fine and people just need to stop freaking out when trans uh, athletes occasionally win things well i think it's the case that people should stop freaking out when trans people <sighs> that win part's things, obvious right <laughs> but not necessarily because i think the current binary system is fine mm -hmm. um so i think it's really like a lot of people whenever i present the scientific evidence about trans athletes, particularly about endogenous testosterone and the lack of relationship between performance. Um, I present the human rights argument. I No one has ever had an objection so far. Mm -hmm. um, every objection that someone gives me, I, I have an answer for. And so what happens is people immediately want to pivot to, well, then why do we have gendered sport at all? Like, why do we even have gender categories? And my first response is, that's an interesting question, but that is a different question. My work is on, given how we currently structure sport, should trans women be allowed to compete with women? And that is one very difficult question. It is a separate question to say, well, should we just do away with gender in sport? So I, I do wanna just make very clear that it is a very separate question. Mm -hmm. So. Let's talk about the separate question. Um, uh, could, could I, I, I'm sorry, could I interject super quick before you do? Yeah. There was something you said before that I really liked as well, uh, um, and that was that it seems that there's always the concern about trans women competing with cis women and not trans men competing with cis men. Yeah, I think... And I, ju I just wanted to, to repeat that thing that you said because I liked it a lot. Yeah, um, that, I think, has to do with an, an inherent sexism in sport and society. Yeah. Um, people tend to think that trans women are really men. They use the ridiculous language of, well, you were born a man. Right, and I want right. to say a woman has never give born, given born to a fully grown man. Um, yep. That yep. <laughs> would probably hurt. Um, so the very language we use is very misleading. Um, but people think that trans women are really men, and so men are on average faster than women on average. Well, that's why it's unfair, so that's why we worry about uh, women's sport. But the flip side of that sort of um, 
trans misogyny is that people tend to view trans men as really women. And since women are on average weaker than men, then fuck it, let them compete. Like they're yeah. only hurting their own chances. So the reason why people tend to only worry about women's sport is also rooted in misogyny. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. should we have gendered sport at all? I think um, this presents a problem for non-binary people. Um, so non-binary people, agender people, um, genderqueer people, like what category do they pick? And there is absolutely no easy answer for that, how we currently structure sport. I, I just don't have an answer. Mm -hmm. um, the true, the, the answer for how we do it now is basically they pick and um, then if there are any gender requirements like the, the hormone requirement, they would have to satisfy those. But that is, that is not a great solution for those people. Um, but I do think, given that our societies are still heavily misogynistic, the way that we treat boys and girls from even before birth, but through birth and early childhood and adolescence is radically different in a way that matters to sport performance. So the ways that we play with girls versus boys, we are rougher with boys. Boys are encouraged to use their bodies more in riskier ways than girls are um, for risk of injury. Like we're worried about girls injuring themselves. Um, boys are encouraged to climb trees, whereas girls are like pulled off to not hurt themselves and go play with dolls. These things have immeasurable performance effects for the rest of their lives. We, we often think of, well, men's sport is 10 to 12% faster, stronger than women's sport, but we have no idea how much of that is biological and how much of that is social, mm. sociological. Mm -hmm. mm. And we've been seeing the gap close over time, particularly when Title IX was passed in the US, um, more girls were being uh, allowed into sport at younger ages, we've seen the performance gap narrow, but we still treat babies and little children and adolescents differently that have ways, uh, that have effects in terms of strength and um, bodily motility and all these things that matter for sport. So given that society still treats girls in a way that um, harms them in terms of performance, I think that is a justification for having women's categories in sport. That's that's a really interesting point. I hadn't, hadn't even thought about it. And relative to the non-binary, non-binary, what do you think about a method similar to boxing and and UFC where they do it in terms of weight classes? And so as opposed to doing a binary system that is gender based, doing a weight class of separation so if you're going to do the 100 meter dash here's you know a lightweight weight class a middleweight heavyweight or something i don't know the thing is that weight classes only work for certain sports where performance is heavily correlated with weight pun intended um <laughs> so there are <sighs> I didn't intend that one, and now I'm a little like embarrassed that I, that I didn't. I, I firmly believe in owning your puns. Yeah, um, it was a good one. Like, thank you. Yeah, I, I wish I had meant it. So, uh, some so some power sports like weightlifting are really heavily um, correlated with size. However, 
one thing that's important is for every natural physical characteristic for which we have categories and weight is the big one, that pun was intended, um, <laughs> is that there's always a greater than category. So the, the heavyweight or super heavyweight, when mm. we talk about women and testosterone limits, there is no greater than permission. You are like out of sport. And that's an important disanalogy. But sprinting, for example, let's look at the 100 meters and uh, Justin Gatlin is 183 pounds and Usain Bolt is 207. Um, would they be in the same weight category or not? Um, a lot of people looked at Usain Bolt and thought this man will never be an elite sprinter. He's simply too big. He's 6'5", he's four inches taller than everybody, he's 20 pounds heavier than everybody, and he just blew them away. Mm. But it was not because he was tall, right? Every elite athlete is a, is a freak of some sort mm -hmm. in some way that their sport selects for. So there are strong correlations in sports that select for height because of physics, like rowing. You can see the height of women gold medalists in the Olympics going up over time. So this is a, a chart I have in the talk I give. Um, but other sports like the marathon are just not correlated with height. There are short people and medium tall people who can win. So you would have to like figure out which sports to break down that way. And we know for sure now, finally, that testosterone is not a way that we could do that. So um, I, I was asked on a cycling podcast, the primary metric that we use to categorize people in terms of ability is um, how much power they can put out in, in terms of watts. Mm. But because of physics and going uphill, what matters is your watts divided by your weight in kilos, so watts per kilo. And uh, a rider like me who puts out 1,700 watts, which is a lot, but I'm pretty heavy, I am garbage at going uphill. So what are you gonna do? Um, are you gonna have like, 50 watt band categories or you, mm -hmm. are you going to do it by watts per kilo but the thing about cycling is also you can have radically different fitness levels um, but tactics matter so much that the less fit person can still win if their tactics are good enough and so i i don't think there's any meaningful way for us to break up sport than we currently do it now mm -hmm. but do you think and well, let's ask this question. Do you think it should be split up in some way or do you think it should be, I guess, a free for all, for lack of a better term? Right. Should anyone, regardless of anything, compete in the 100 meter dash and have only one category of it? I think once we reach social parity such that people of different genders, races, and intersectional identities are not marginalized based on that identity in ways that matter for performance, then we can do the free-for-all. But we are nowhere near that yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I have one more question based on something that you said along the way there. Um, that was a lot of interesting stuff, but I wanted to... This is often this, this whole debate um, going back a little bit to the beginning section where we're talking about turfs is characterized often as like a debate between third wave and second wave feminism a little bit that like the the turfs often are, I think, viewed as kind of a subset of second wave feminists. Um, but it seems like from what we've what we've said over the course of this, that like 
that's not quite accurate from what we've seen when we've done episodes on Simone de Beauvoir versus um, Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, that like these people, if they're really gender essentialists in the way that it seems like they are when you press them on it, they're much closer to like a first wave feminist, right? Yeah, that's why I say that they are everything wrong with second wave feminism wrapped up in a little ball of hate. So, um, yeah, I don't want to say that they are second wave feminists. I don't think that they see themselves that way either. They, I think, I, I don't know what they think about themselves. Um, there is a sort of transphobic webpage called The Fourth Wave Now. Um, so some transphobic, air quote, feminists have been wanting to say that like trans inclusion is a problem with third wave feminism. So it's time to, to work on fourth wave feminism, which Post -post somehow feminism. wakes up. Um, so some of them would fashion themselves as fourth wave rather than some subset of second wave. But you're right. Um, I don't think you find you. There are certainly very famous transphobic second wave feminists like Janice Raymond, um, Jermaine Greer, uh, Mary Daly. So they did identify as second wave feminists and they are really the, the mothers and grandmothers of turfdom. So turfdom. It, it is probably <laughs> accurate to say that they are some bad subset of second wave feminism. But like they're, they're historically the part of that second wave, but in a sense they're regressing a little bit toward away from the sort of central insight of someone like Simone de Beauvoir, who, like you said, you know, no one is born a woman, they all become women. Like Right, and let's not be unfair to first wave feminists. I don't think that they particularly thought about gender in these terms, right? First wave feminism was really about the suffragette movement. Right. Um, so I, I don't want to say that, like, they're the second wave regressing towards the first wave. I think that would be unfair to the first wave. Um, so I think they are really just their own offshoot. I, I mean, I guess when we looked at um, Wollstonecraft, there was a little bit of like, you know, women should be more independent, but also still conform to a specific role and virtues and things like that, that it seems to me that it, what's what's essential about the second wave is that it, it it moves closer to the thing that we were saying earlier, where it's like nothing is essentially coded gendered in any kind of way. Um, but I think they, in in sort of excluding trans individuals, want to say that like certain things are coded that way. If nothing else, then the sort of experience of being raised up to any particular point biologically female before transitioning. That seems to be their, their one of their major sticking points. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think it's important to recognize that they are, they're not just feminists, but they identify as radical feminists. And um, radical feminisms tend to share um, certain features, but one of which is that women's oppression is necessarily biologically tied or tied to their biological role in reproduction. Mm -hmm. So, um, they think that women are mistreated and socialized in the ways that they are because they have a uterus or that they're suspected to have a uterus. And so this is part of the turf view that, well, trans women aren't really women because they weren't raised as female from birth. So one of their slogans is women born women, where the E is replaced with a Y. Hmm. Um, 
Yeah, so I think the that that's an ignorant view because it requires some um, view where all women are socialized in the same way, in some like rel relevantly similar way, which I just don't think is true. Um, I hate to cut you guys off, but we're sort of getting yeah, close to the enough. end there. Um, but this is a really great conversation. Um, do you want to plug any and all of your things? Well, do we want to do Hero of the Week? Where can no? we find you? Uh, I I don't think we're going to have time for okay. Hero. Fair enough. And I don't want to cut off any of this stuff because it was all super good. Fair enough. That's okay. We'll, we'll still link the, sure. the Hero that you gave us from before in the show notes. We'll just... Uh, totally. it, was a, it was a nice resource for individuals in Utah who were dealing with things. But yeah. Um, yeah. Quick, quick shout out to Queer Meals yeah. in yeah. Provo. Um yeah, so most people can find me on, on Twitter or Instagram at Rachel V. McKinnon. Um, I'm most active on, on Instagram. I just had some t-shirt and hoodie designs done for me, and the store is now open for two weeks. I saw those. They were cool. time only. So the link is in my uh, bio on Instagram, and it's my pinned tweet on Twitter. And yeah, um, my... The team project that I have is sort of a solo racing project promoting uh, trans-inclusive and gender-inclusive sport and just inclusive sport in general. My hashtag is sport is a human right. And uh, my racing project is called Rainbow Fox Racing. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this and for doing it twice. It was so so nice we did it twice. Um, yeah. But I think this was really great and um, I really appreciate it. And good luck with dealing with all the trolls and the PTSD and uh, uh, still being amazing despite all of that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We would like to thank our top patrons, Jesse Rubinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Dave Maslick, Abe, CampQuest.org, 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 Mr. Nobody, Chad Trait, and person who controls the spice controls the void. If you would like to become a patron, find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. As always, remember, you are the void, and the void is you.